1: Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. The Bay Area has a rich diversity of churches and ministries that serve the community in Jesus' name. And here at KFAX, we love to shine a spotlight onto the great things God is doing through the kingdom work of pastors and ministry leaders. We feature a sermon or presentation from that leader to get you better acquainted with churches who will welcome you to worship,
0: And ministry opportunities that invite your involvement.
2: Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. Today we're very pleased to have Pastor Stephen H. Converse of Grace Bible Church. After pastoring in youth ministry for 15 plus years, Steve accepted the call to pastor at Grace Bible Church and began his ministry in January of 1998. He's a graduate of Indiana University of Pennsylvania with a degree in criminology and a degree in Bible pastoral ministry. From Christian Heritage College in San Diego He and his wife, Ambika, were married on May 1st, 1993 And they reside in Redwood City Steve enjoys teaching and preaching God's word In an expository manner Allowing the word of God to speak to the hearts of God's people He also serves in the community by volunteering as a chaplain With the Redwood City Police Department He also enjoys spending time with his daughter, Crystal And her husband, Will, and their three grandchildren Mason, Sophia, and Gabrielle Steve can be heard every Sunday right here on KFAX 1100 on the program Graceful Truth beginning at 3.30 p.m. Today's sermon by Stephen Converse of Grace Bible Church in Redwood City is about all things work together for good. Romans 8.28. Find out more about Grace Bible Church online at gracebibleonline.org or at our website kfax.com. And now Pastor Stephen H. Converse on the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday message.
1: Right. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I think one of the most helpful things for a Christian to understand and to learn in regard to their Christian life is how to handle uh, that life when trials, when suffering inevitably comes your way. And if you haven't suffered yet in some form or fashion, trust me, you will. Uh, Jesus explained that there were some who received the word with joy. It says, but their faith was only temporary. Uh, When affliction or persecution because of the word hits them, it says that they immediately fall away. That's in Matthew 13. I think people like that come to Christ, they didn't expect affliction, they didn't expect or understand the suffering that comes along with being a Christian or how to handle it. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they quote come to Christ, they sign up for success, not suffering. They want prosperity, not persecution. So when the trials come and the suffering hits, they take a step back and they realize wow what did i sign up for here i don't know if i want this and especially it's in times of suffering that our enemy satan whom peter describes in first peter chapter 5 verses 8 to 10 as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour that he roams about it's in times of suffering, I think, that Satan is on the prowl. <clears throat> so I think it's essential that for our spiritual survival and our spiritual health, that we come to understand and apply what the Bible teaches to us about trials, about suffering. And Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is one verse that speaks to that, but more than that, it speaks of even through that suffering, we can be assured of total security. Total security. You know, our country has a, a uh, organization, a part of the government called Homeland Security. Um, A lot of people don't feel too comfortable with Homeland Security nowadays, for obvious reasons. But, we can be assured that our eternal security is just that, it's secure in Christ. Um, And this verse is probably one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. Romans 8, verse 28, reads this way, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to continue reading because it's important to understand the context. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And to those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One thing we're learning as we go through... Romans chapter 8 about life in the spirit is that not only does the spirit of Christ open our hearts and our minds to the gospel and allows us to be in this uh, spiritual straight as a state that we receive no condemnation. He starts off there in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that's because we are justified before God, that we've been made righteous before God. Not that we were righteous. We were lost in our sin, as we sang about this morning. But God, through Christ and the power of the Spirit, came in and saved us, opened our eyes to our own plight that we were lost in our sin. And helped us to realize there was only one way out through Christ. And so when we read Romans eight twenty eight, it's probably a very familiar text. But you know what? All things don't just work out for their own good. It's not like he's saying, well, this just happens. This is just part of life. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he's saying that God providentially works all things together for good for his people according to his purpose now romans eight twenty eight can be a great source of comfort, and I pray that it will be a comfort to you today when it 's properly understood, but so many times it 's misunderstood and it 's misapplied. Some think it teaches kind of a Pollyanna positive note on life everything 's just going to be fine don 't worry about anything. We know that the bottom 's falling out and the wheels are falling off the cart and Christmas is coming, you have no money. Don't worry, everything's going to work out. That's not what he's saying. Because that really denies and that minimizes the reality of suffering. That minimizes the reality of evil as a result of sin in our world. Uh, This isn't a don't worry, be happy sermon. And that's not what Paul intended it to be. And that's what this verse is not saying. And I think sometimes some well meaning Christians kind of recite this verse when maybe people are in the thrones of grief <laughs> or they've lost a loved one and they're just trying to comfort or trying to help, and this pops into their head, and so they just, well, you know, God works all things together for good, for those who love God. And sometimes that falls on deaf ears because I don't know about you, but at the moment of loss, The grieving person mostly needs your presence. The grieving person mostly needs your help with practical matters. And later, maybe, after the grief has passed, you can help them apply this verse and understand it better. Because it will help us to weather suffering when suffering comes, if we understand this verse before the storm hits. So in the context here, Paul has given us this encouragement, this hope with the truth that, you know what, we have suffering in this present age. And we've looked at the different groanings that have happened. Creation's groaning, believers are groaning, even the Holy Spirit is groaning. And they're all groaning for this curse to be lifted. We've looked at that the last couple weeks. And so here, Paul says, basically, you know what? These present time sufferings that you're going to go through in life, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that one time you will possess in the future. It doesn't even compare. It's like a blip on the radar screen. Nothing. And so he encouraged us with the truth that the Holy Spirit is also, we looked at this last week, helping us because sometimes we don't know what the will of God is we don't know how to pray and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us so we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us you have Christ as our mediator we really have a lot going for us as believers in Christ but that raises this question if the Spirit is praying for the saints according to the will of God then why do we suffer? why are we persecuted? In some countries, even to death. And they ask the question, can such suffering be in accord with God's will? And what Paul wants to affirm to our hearts here today is that, you know what? God works all things, all things together for good. To those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Before we get into the text, I just want you to notice something here that I noticed this week. In verse 26, notice it says that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So Paul points out something we don't know, but he says, don't worry about that because the Spirit's interceding for you. But then here in verse eight or verse 28, he starts off and he says, we do know this though. <laughs> We may not know how to pray at times, how we should. But you know what? One thing we do know for certain. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. In our weakness, sometimes we don't know how to pray. But the Spirit's interceding for us. And that should give us comfort to know that our sovereign God is working all these things in our life. Good, bad, ugly, whatever. For the ultimate good of His purpose. One commentator Douglas Moo talks about these verses, and he says this in verses 28 to 30 in his commentary on Romans. He says, we know that all things are working for good for those of us who love God. And we know this is so because we who love God are also those who have been summoned by God to enter into relationship with him. A summons that is in accordance with God's purpose to mold us into the image of Christ and to ultimately glorify us. See, this is not a happy, happy in Jesus gospel that we preach. It's also a gospel that contains suffering. Sometimes there's confusion of the the, the way of salvation. And we have to be reminded that that Jesus said, narrow, right? Narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Someone penned this little poem. It's called Easy Road Crowded. It says, the easy roads are crowded and the level roads are jammed. The pleasant little rivers with the drifting folks are crammed. But off yonder where it's rocky, where you better, where you get a better view, you will find the ranks are thinning and the travelers are few. Where the going's smooth and pleasant, you will always find the throng. For the many moors, the pity seem to like to drift along. But the steps that call for courage and the task that's hard to do in the end results in glory for the never wavering few. See, the way of salvation is not broad, beloved. It's narrow. And sometimes we're caused to believe that, well, gee, everybody's a Christian. We live in America. America. Well, there's a lot of people that are claiming to be Christians that are not. It's just that simple because when you talk to them and you begin to understand what they understand the gospel means to them, it's not what the Bible says it should mean. And so God here is, through Paul, is telling us that he cannot only work all things for his saints together for good but that he can also work all things these saints are doing for good as well. And so those who are in Christ, those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose for their life, we should rest in the confidence that we are beneath the shadow of his wings. And if the whole of scripture were a feast, when you look at Romans eight twenty eight, I mean, this is the turkey, you know, this is the steak. This isn't a, a, a side. This isn't the mashed potatoes or the gravy. This is where the meat is. So let's examine this verse together. And the first thing I see here in verse 28 is he starts off and he says, Paul says, and we know. We know. That speaks of assurance. In other words, he assures us, he asserts by God's authority that as believers in Jesus Christ, we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that every aspect of our life is in God's hands. And that we will be divinely used by the Lord, not only to manifest His own glory, but also to work out our own ultimate blessing of glorification. This phrase here, we know, it carries the idea even that we can know. And and why I say that is because I run into a lot of Christians who are legitimately Christians. They've truly been saved. And yet, they have a hard time believing that God guarantees their eternal security. And some of it is just being ignorant to the things that the word teaches. Some people believe that somehow that they... They chose God so they can unchoose God. And we live in a day and age where there's a very man centered gospel. And that's unfortunate because that's not what the true gospel says. The true gospel speaks of a salvation by a sovereign God and God alone. And if God is the one who saves us, who are we to unsave ourselves? And we who love God and we know that we are called according to his purpose. We know that without a shadow of doubt, God is somehow working all these things together for good. Because that's what scripture tells us. And yet there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who deal with a lack of assurance. A lack of understanding what it means to Be secure in Christ. And there's a variety of reasons for that. And Paul doesn't go into them here, but he says without a shadow of a doubt, we know for certain that this is true, that God works all these things together for good. There's not even a question of doubt here. And the reason he knows that is because he understands who God is. I think one of the biggest hindrances to most Christians today is they they fail to understand who their Savior is. They fail to understand who God is. So what I always say is, you know what? Do a study of the attributes of God and then come back and talk to me about your doubts. If you can go through a study of the attributes of God and understand more fully who your God is and how he saved you, read the first three chapters of Ephesians and then come back and say, well... You know what? I mean, if there's still doubts there, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ. Maybe you need to come afresh to Christ. I don't know. But every believer should have that assurance that passes all understanding that we should, you know what, know for sure, irregardless of what's going on in our life, that if we were to die today that we would be in the presence of God, not because of who we are. But because of what God has done on our behalf. So we know the assurance. Secondly, it speaks to the scope of this security that we have. Not only do we know about the security, but He says here all things work together for good. We know that all things work together for good. I mean, that should bring you joy, that should bring you hope, that should bring you confidence and happiness and freedom. All things here says that there is no limit to what works together for our good. There's not a limit. It includes everything. Romans 8.28 is not limited to simply all suffering or all trouble or all good things or all righteousness. And it's not saying that all things are in themselves good. That's not what this verse is saying. There's a lot of bad things in our life that God somehow works together for good. That word good there is interesting in the original language, agathon, in the Greek. If you have an aunt or a grandmother named Agatha, that's what it means, good. It means good. Refers to something that is morally, inherently good. Not just something that's good on the outside, not just something that looks good, but something that's good through and through. And it's interesting, the precision of the Greek language There's another word that, that, that speaks to being good just on the outside. Oh, that looks great. Now, this is the word that means, you know what, it's good through and through. It's not just superficially good. a matter of fact, it can even refer to things that don't look good. <laughs> but still are good because they're inherently good because God somehow is using them for his purpose. And so Paul here has in mind our current circumstances, the current life that he's living, by application the current life that we're living, but he also has in mind our future glorification. Don't forget that one day we will be glorified. That's what everybody's groaning about in Romans chapter 8. We all want to be freed from this body of sin and death. And since everything in our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever you want to say, ultimately works together, God works all those things together for our good, hear me, nothing could ever cause you, if you're truly saved, to lose your salvation. Nothing. Nothing. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, 15 and 16, God uses difficult circumstances in the nation of Israel. And he takes them out and lets them flounder around for several years. And at the end of that verse, it says that he might humble thee, that he might test thee to do thee good in the end. See, God didn't send Israel out to wander around in the desert just for the fun of it, you know, we don't have a God that is up there moving us like little chess pieces on a on a chessboard, saying, oh, "I wonder how He'll respond to this. Let's see." <laughs> everything in our life has a purpose, has a plan. Here, He did it to refine them, and everything ultimately works together for good for God's children. It doesn't happen automatically because you have the spirit at work, you have the sun who's constantly interceding. It's not like we just go to bed one day and wake up the next day and we're, Whoa, everything's great." No. There's a process, a process of sanctification that takes place each and every day. Well, look at these things. It says good things, first of all. We can include good things for our good. Um, John MacArthur put, through a, put, a little, put together a little list of the good things. And uh, he said, first of all, we can include God's attributes. That God works all those things together for our good. He also includes God's promises. Did you ever go through and just start underlining promises? Exodus 34:6 says that if we repent of our sin, that God is merciful and gracious. Psalm 91:15 reassures us that God is with us and walks through with us for all of our troubles. Philippians 4:19 says that God will supply all of your needs. God's promises are, are things that we need to be reminded of. So we have God's attributes. We have God's promises. We also have God's word. I mean, have you ever thought about what a blessing it is to have a copy of God's word that you can read at any time in your hand or online or on your phone or whatever? I mean, this is how we're built up as a body. We come to God's word. We're edified. Also, prayer. Prayer really releases God's power in our lives as we come to him in prayer. Bible says in Hebrews 1.14, not only prayer, but even the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation. God blesses us with those. Those are good things. Fellow Christians, 2 Corinthians 1.24 says, we are helpers of your joy. With Christians, we should be able to help one another. We should be able to minister to one another. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke onto love and to good works it also reminds us hey don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together so you have god's attributes you have god's promises you have the bible you have prayer you have angels you have other believers all these things god works out for good and these are good things but there's also some bad things (laughs) we don't like to focus on this There are bad things that somehow God works out for good. See, Paul is not saying that the bad things are good. Don't misunderstand. Bad things are always bad. Evil is always evil. Sin is always sin. But God says somehow through his sovereignty, he extends over both bad and good things. And he puts them all together to work them out for our good all things firstly suffering do you know that suffering i wouldn't say is a good thing (laughs) suffering is a result of the curse if there was never any sin in the garden of eden we wouldn't have suffering today that's why everybody's groaning to get rid of the suffering there wouldn't be pain there wouldn't be sorrow there wouldn't be death Suffering in and of itself is not evil, but it's the result of an evil world, of a sin-stained world. Think of Job. (laughs) In the midst of terrible circumstances, he says, The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why does God allow us to suffer? What is the purpose? Sometimes God allows us to suffer as discipline or chastisement for our sin. But not all suffering is a result of sin. Sometimes God allows us to suffer so that it can take us where we are and refine us and make, it, make us what he wants us to be. Somehow, the process of suffering purifies us, refines, kind of like the fire refines gold, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 1.7. And I don't know about you, but when I'm going through suffering, I'm a lot more focused on God than in times of bliss and ease. You bring along some suffering, you get that bad doctor's report, or you get a phone call, some one of your loved ones is having an issue, or whatever, boy, boy, you turn right to God, you're focused on God. It has a way of pushing us toward God. And God uses it, that suffering, to achieve good results in our lives that's why james chapter 1 verse 2 and 3 says my brethren count it all joy when you fall into different trials the idea there is cage rattling trials are coming from every side it's not just some little trial it's a big trial knowing this that the testing of your faith what works patience and then first peter chapter 5 verse 10 says after you have suffered a while the lord will make you perfect See, God uses suffering in our lives to help us grow spiritually. It's not fun. You know, I don't wake up in the morning, man, I can't wait to suffer for Jesus. No. I'm like, man, if I can get out of the suffering, I'm going to go that route. I think you'd have a problem if you just wanted to suffer all the time. But through that suffering, we learn things like kindness and sympathy, compassion and patience, gentleness. Gentleness. It leads us to look to God, to trust him, to depend on his power, his grace, and his mercy. There's a lot of different examples in the Bible of people who went through suffering. You think of somebody like Joseph in the Old Testament. I mean, his brothers talking about having a family feud, man. They threw him in a pit. Then they sold him to some men on their way to Egypt. That's what they thought of Joseph. Later, he was imprisoned. But you know what? Somehow God used all these circumstances in his life for Joseph's good. And we all know the story there. You think of Job even. I mean, this poor guy lost everything he had. Except one thing, his wife. He probably thought he would have wanted her to go too. I mean, after she said, I'll just curse God and die. You know, I mean, what what an encouraging wife that would be. His barns were destroyed. His cattle were stolen. His children were killed. He had sores all over his body. And he was still able to say to the Lord, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, it cost him everything. But you read the end of the story... God gave him back more than he ever lost. Hard to even imagine that, but that's what happened. Or you think of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who was burdened with a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was exactly. God, or Paul asked several times for it to be removed, and and God basically said, No, you're going to understand my power through your weakness. When Paul was afflicted with blindness on the Damascus Road, it worked for his good in drawing him to Christ. I mean, what are some of the benefits of suffering when you stop and think about it? I don't know about you, but when you see people suffering, it really teaches us to hate sin. You know, when you see somebody in the hospital bed and they're sick and they're losing their mind and they're not doing well physically, that's all a result of the curse. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said this, Affliction teaches us what sin is. A sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. (laughs) We can best see the ugly visage of sin in the glass of affliction and suffering. And that is so true. When Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb, it says that he groaned in his spirit. He was troubled. Why? He was faced with suffering. He was faced with death. He agonized over the tears, the pain, the sorrow that sin and death brings. So when you go through suffering, you learn to hate sin a little bit more. But I think when we suffer, it also helps us to see our own sin (laughs) when we go through suffering. I mean, you know, when everything's going well in your life and every boy you're just cruising along on autopilot and, you know, you don't have any spiritual problems, family's doing well, you're doing well financially, everything's just easy street. Get a little pious. Feel a little good about yourself. But as soon as everything collapses, as soon as troubles come your way, sometimes it's even easier to shake your fist at God and say, Why did you do this, God? Why? Because you could become impatient. You begin to doubt God. And you know what? It's in those times. That's when we find out, do we really trust him? Are we really trusting him? With the daily things that go on in our life. So suffering has a way of exposing the only, the, <clears throat> our own sinful hearts. And suffering, as I said before, drives us to God. God. It drives us to God. When we're going through suffering, boy, we're quick to fall on our knees and pray. And it also conforms us to the image of Christ. We enter into the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And so you you have to stop and you have to thank God for things like suffering. Read this illustration, little story. And years ago, there was a fishing fleet that sailed out from this small little harbor on the east coast of Newfoundland. And in the afternoon, while the fleet was out to sea, this great storm arose. And when night settled in, not a single vessel from all of the fleet found its way back into port. all night long, the wives and the mothers and the children and the sweethearts paced up and down the beach, wringing their hands, calling on God to save their loved ones thinking that all hope is lost. or well, to add to the horror of the situation, during the night, one of the cottages caught on fire. And since all the men were out to sea, it was impossible for the women and the children to save the home, and it burned to the ground. And it was an incredible fire. Well, their hearts were broken, clearly. And when morning broke, the story says, to the joy of all the entire fleet... Found its way safe back in the bay. And as the folks came off the boats and onto the land, there was but one face that was a picture of despair, and that was the wife of the man whose home had been destroyed in the fire. And meeting her husband on the shore, she cried out, O husband, we're ruined. Our home, everything that it contained was destroyed by this massive fire last night. All the men were gone. There's no way we could have put it out. But the man exclaimed this. Thank God for the fire. It was the light of our burning cottage that guided the whole fleet into port. See, sometimes what looks to the human eye to be devastation and horror God uses in our lives, in the lives of others. So suffering is one of those things. Also, te- temptation. Secondly, temptation, God uses things like temptation. When we're tempted, we should be driven to our knees in prayer. When we're tempted, it should remind us of our prideful heart, it should help us depend on Christ more. It should definitely make us desire heaven more. In heaven, there'll be no temptation. Remember what Paul cried out in Romans 7. The good that I would do, I do not. But the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. And everybody's groaning to be free from this body of sin and death. That's why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Is gain. And he says, I'm kind of a conflict here between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So temptation has a way of pushing us closer and closer, our desire to God. And then the last thing, which is kind of a different if you think about it that God even can use our own sin for his good wow because he says there all things work together for good well you know what all things include sin and what he wants us to understand no matter what happens to us as Christians God will ultimately work it out for our good according to his purpose now that doesn't take away from the ugliness of sin Sin deserves hell for all eternity. But God somehow in his greatness overrules it in our lives for our own good. I mean, if you can get your mind around that one, that's just incredible. If you stop and think about it, when we see the sin in other people, we should have a holy kind of angst against it, but we should also have that same angst against our own sins. And God is so powerful that he can overrule even the sins that we commit as believers. Truly, they're forgiven in Christ. But God overrules the ultimate consequences of damnation because Christ had already paid for the penalty of our sin. Our sins work for our good by making us look to glory. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be free from this place and this body and just the presence of sin, to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Well we also see here in verse 28, who the beneficiaries of this verse are. It says, and we know, well, who is the we? That God works all things together for good. And then he tells us who the beneficiaries are for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. He describes us with two phrases there. First of all, those who love God. In Scripture, Christians are kind of called at different things at different times. They're called children of God, sons of God, believers, true worshipers, saints. Well, here they're identified as them that love God. If you're a believer here today, you are part of the them who loved God. You are part of the them who are called. Do you truly love the Lord? That's a good indicated indicator that you are truly a believer. First Corinthians chapter two, verse nine, Paul says, I has not seen nor heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God has prepared for them that what? That love him. First Corinthians eight three If any man love God, the same is known of him. Or James 1.12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Why does the Bible so frequently identify Christians as those that love God? I mean, you notice Paul didn't say here, those who are saved, or those who are children of God. He said, no, those who love God, or those that believe, he didn't say that. That's a good thing, because over in James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, yeah, you believe that there's one God, well, that's good. The demons also believe, and they tremble. See, true salvation is not based on whether you believe in God or not. Do you understand that? It's based, true salvation produces people who love God, who love the things of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23 and 24 says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Or from the lips of our own Lord and Savior Jesus, he says in Luke 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? So, there's a clear indicator. If you love God, it's not just lip service. You're going to see it in somebody's life. A true Christian seeks communion with God. A true Christian praises God, glorifies God. A true Christian enjoys the peace that we have as a believer. You love what God loves. You hate what God hates. I mean... Do you think that one day you just woke up and said, you know, I think I'm going to start loving God now. Doesn't happen that way. An unbeliever can't generate the kind of, of love that we need to have for God. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, 11 tells us that no one can do good on his own, no matter how hard he tries. Romans 5.1 says that we believers have peace with God. Well, in contrast, what does that mean? That means unbelievers are at war with God. A person who is at war with God, who is ignorant in darkness and hopeless, cannot love God on his own. I mean, there are only two kinds of people in the world today. Those who love God and those who hate him. Basically, that's it. Now, you may not see yourself as a hater of God if you're you're not saved, but you are. That's what the Bible says. Those who love God keep his commandments. Those who hate God don't. Those who are Christians don't love God as much as they should, maybe. But their heart's desire is to love and obey him. So a love for God is something that we need to possess. Secondly, he says those who are called, those who are called, What does that mean? God's call is what changes a person from a hater of God to a lover of God. That's when it happens. I mean, as as Christians, we just didn't decide one day to stop stop hating God and start loving him. That's not how it works. 1 John 4.19 says, the apostle John says, we love him because what? He first loved us. The identifying mark of a Christian is love for God. And yet you have to understand that love first came from God himself. We don't just come up with it on our own. Speaking of God's calling, when you stop and think about it, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, Jesus said, many are called, but few are what? Chosen. And that verse appears in a parable about people who are called to come to the Lord. Here the call is an external invitation. Many people hearing the gospel and are invited to respond to it. However, only few are chosen. That's the internal call from God. Remember, narrow is the gate. Hard is the way that leads to life. Few will be that find it. In the Bible, when it speaks of being called, it always talks about a calling that refers to salvation it's an effective calling romans 8 verse 30 says whom he, de- he uh, did predestinate those whom he also called those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified it's a process you can't get halfway through the process and throw your hands up and say hey, I'm, I'm opting out no why because it's not you that's doing the process it's god that's doing the process salvation originates from an effectual calling of god it doesn't originate from going to church reading your bible from answering an invitation that's not how people are saved god can use those processes but his divine purpose in choosing is ultimately how we are saved you love god because he first loved you martin lloyd jones says this god interferes with our life that's why we love him and it wasn't until he interfered in your life that you loved him. He initiated your salvation. That's so important to understand. And throughout the Bible, the church is referred to as those who are called by God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, it says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, he says, not according to our works. You hear that? It's not based on what you do or what you don't do, but according to his own purpose and grace with which which was given us in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Before the world began. <laughs> so that plays in right with what Ephesians says. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ. God saved us in eternity past so that he could glorify us in eternity future. If that doesn't speak to total security, I don't know what else does that's why it's impossible for us to lose our salvation once you have it because we didn't do anything to get it in the first place it was God who chose us so why do all things work together for those that are, love God and called according to his purpose because the called are the same ones who are going to be justified and the ones he justified are the ones that he's going to glorify in the end it's all going to work out And we're going to be conformed to the image of his son one day. We're not complete, beloved, until we're like Christ. And God's working that out in our lives now. That's one thing that we have to look forward to. Jesus said in John 17, verse 12, Those that the Father gives me I have kept, and none of them is lost. See, to believe that somehow you could lose your salvation has the idea that somehow you had something to do with it in the beginning. It's a man-centered gospel. God calls us by his word and through his spirit. The Bible says in, in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the what? word of Christ. See, that's why it's so important. Today, we have people all over the world saying, oh, yeah, people are being saved and they've never heard about Jesus. That's not that's that's not true. <laughs> Can a person be called and be saved without hearing about Christ? No. I mean, what, what are they supposed to hear? I mean, some people even believe a person can be saved without knowing it. They kind of take Calvinism to the hyper-extreme, you might say. But Scripture says that saving faith requires hearing about Christ, hearing about Jesus. The first person has to know the facts. We have to understand the gospel. And then God gives us with the grace and the faith to understand, calls us by his Holy Spirit. Well, he also says here, where this originates says and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to what our purpose his purpose it's according to God's purpose I mean I hate to break it to you but you know what you couldn't save yourself even if you tried and you can't keep yourself saved either God had to save us. And because God saved us, he keeps us saved. I don't know about you, but that helps me sleep at night. That he's the source of our security. It originates with him. Ephesians 1.4 says, He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. See, God did this for his glory. So that we didn't get glory in our salvation process. He planned for our glorification And nothing is going to stand in the way of that. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I mean, the supreme illustration of that, you might say, is the death of Christ himself. Here he is, the savior of the world. He's dying this horrible death. The worst thing that could ever happen in human history. God himself on a cross being mistreated, ill-treated, and eventually giving up his life was the best thing that could ever happen. God turned that into an incredible event that is able to save those who put their faith and trust in him. God works to overrule everything in our life for his ultimate glory in our good. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Stand in a word of prayer. And Father, we thank you for... Our message this morning, we thank you, Lord, that you work all things together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. And, Father, all things sometimes are tragic events in our lives. And, Lord, we pray today that you would just uh, remind us that um, you are at work and that your hand is still drawing those who need to be saved. Father, it's a simple prayer, a cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a, a sinner that can save And, Lord, we pray that you would um, remind us this holiday season that the times that we share with our family and friends are precious. Lord, help us never to take them for granted. And, Father, we pray that we would continue to grow, just be built up in our faith, and that we would uh, continue to give um, this uh, life-changing gospel out to a lost and dying world. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.
2: You've been listening to Pastor H. Stephen Converse of Grace Bible Church on the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday message. Today's sermon by Stephen Converse of Grace Bible Church in Redwood City is about all things work together for good. Romans eight twenty eight. Find out more about Stephen on their website, gracebibleonline.org or at our website, kfax.com, where you can also find links to podcasts of this program. I'm Mike Matthews. Join us here at again next week for the Ministry of the Week Sunday Message on AM 1100 KFAX